0: This is the Onkazine Brief with Peter Hofland and Sonia Portillo.
1: In this edition of the Onkazine Brief, we talk about medical debt. Everyone can be affected by medical debt. Even if you're covered by health insurance, medical debt may be something you have to deal with. Because let's face it, a catastrophic illness, including cancer, strikes people in all walks of life without warning. And paralyzing medical debt hits people when they're down, turning tragedy into travesty. Today, the immense iceberg of medical debt submerges millions of people in a sea of hopelessness. This can adversely affect the course of their illness, damaging their ability to recover. I'm Peter Hoffland, and this is the Ongesin Brief. In today's show, we talk about medical debt with Robert Goff, one of the co-authors of a new book about the subject. Goff wrote the book End Medical Debt, Curing America's One Trillion Unpayable Healthcare Debt, together with Jerry Ashton and Craig Antico. With more than 40 years of experience in the healthcare industry, Robert Goff is a recognized expert in care delivery, organization, and financing. His career spans a wide range of leadership positions as a hospital administrator, managed care executive, and consultant. And as an entrepreneur, Goff has been responsible for the development of numerous healthcare businesses, including one of the first for-profit HMOs in New York State, one of the earliest physician practice management companies a chain of urgent care centers and the first network model Medicare and Medicaid managed care plans in a secondary market. He recently retired as the executive director and CEO of University Physicians Network in New York City. The OnCouzine Brief is developed in collaboration with our online journal OnCouzine at www.oncogene.com, where you can find additional information and the latest news about cancer cancer diagnosis, and the treatment of cancer, as well as prevention. Let's listen to our interview with Robert Goff. Here with me, uh, Robert Goff. Robert is the uh, author of a publication called End Medical Death and RIP Medical Debt. Before we going to talk a little bit about this book, Robert, can you tell me a little bit about your background and why this subject is of interest to you?
2: So, I have spent over 45 years in the healthcare area, in the administrative area. My clinical background has been in the end-stage renal disease area in particular. But over the years, regardless of what I was involved with, the issue of the affordability of healthcare has always troubled me. As we keep on getting more and more sophisticated, I am seeing less and less people able to afford either the care or the health insurance premiums. And we've had a ongoing debate in this country about affordability, which oftentimes gets away from what are our nation's goals in terms of health and health services for our population. We need to take a look back at what do we want for our citizens how do we have a healthier nation? Our debates right now have been much more about who's going to pay for it than what are we getting? Should we be getting it? Who's getting it? And how do we make healthcare accessible, not only physically, but affordability? Along the way, what really became of interest to me and what prompted my involvement with what became RIP Medical Debt, our charity. And then the writing with my co-founders of the charity, this book, is the issue of how that debt hurts everybody involved. It hurts, obviously, the individual who is accumulating that debt as they struggle to pay medical bills while still keeping food on the table for their family. But it also affects negatively hospitals in a community who may no longer be able to stay in business and keep their doors open. And it also hurts the physician in private practice who it may be unable to remain in a community or provide services. So medical debt is something that has really become an enemy for all concerned, and that has fascinated me that we've gotten into this situation where we're visiting such financial pain on our citizens.
1: Now, if if you compare, just a lot of talk about debt. Of course, we uh, have the infamous credit card, but also uh, mortgage debt right now is educational issues uh, about uh, uh, people not being able to pay for that. If you compare the issue of those different categories of debt, how do you rank medical debt in that, that overview?
2: So medical debt is very different from any other kind of debt. It is not a debt of choice. It's a debt of necessity. Nobody volunteers to be sick. Yes, everybody can do something to try to stay healthier, but in reality, nobody chooses to get cancer. Nobody chooses to have a heart attack. No one chooses these things, which then makes the debt a one of necessity. We can make an argument about mortgage debt to say a person has chosen to buy a home and maybe chose poorly by buying too much of a home or a person... who even seeking education, goes into debt, maybe they could have built their education career in a less costly manner. Those are choices. Medical debt is very, very different because the people involved who assume it really have no choice. It's a matter of, you know, if I don't have that medical procedure, the belief is I will not survive. Therefore, what are my choices? That's the big difference that, uh, that accumulates. I think uh, the issue of student debt is one that we also hear an awful lot about and comparable, but medical debt is the area that we have the, our focus on. And because of that necessity, it's not a voluntary act.
1: Right. Well, that's obvious, very clear. Um, And I think it's also good for our listeners to understand how serious this is uh, when, when we talk about the issue of medical debt. Now, one of the things that you write about in your book, and I think it's also in the article that you that, that we've published in our journal, online journal Oncogene, is that there is about a one trillion dollar of unpaid healthcare debt in this country. Can you tell me a
2: little bit more about that? Sure. So this is the accumulated debt, really over the last five to seven years, that's been accumulated of individuals who not only haven't paid the bills, but it's unpayable by the individual. This is what has accumulated based upon high deductibles on individuals who have been caught in the trap of -of out-of-network services that haven't been paid, where they do not have the resources to make payment of that debt. And whether they're expecting their insurance to, or there are gaps in the insurance, the reality is that every year we keep on accumulating more and more of that burden. Where we've gotten involved as a charity, RIP Medical Debt, is we seek to acquire that debt and using donated funds, abolish it. And by abolishing that debt, take the burden away from the individual, take that piece off their back, notify the credit reporting agencies, credit scores go up, there's a certain stress level of the patient that uh, has been removed, and hopefully in the process, they will as well feel more comfortable interacting with the healthcare system. Now, there's an interesting piece that we use in in our criteria. Medical debt, and most people don't know this, but hospitals, some physicians, take what they cannot collect after they've tried using collection agencies, and they actually sell that debt. They sell that debt for pennies on the dollar. They're happy to get what they can. The chief financial officer of the hospital says, gee, this is great. I just sold uh, Ten thousand dollars worth of uh, medical debt, and I sold it for a thousand dollars. Well, what we try to do is buy that at the time it's being sold for pennies on the dollar, so that we can maximize the impact. And to date, we have abolished in excess of five hundred million dollars of consumer medical debt. When we acquire debt, we look to abolish debt where the individual is no more than two times above the uh, poverty level, where the debt is causing them to become insolvent where the burden is greater than 5% of their assets. So what we seek to abolish by RIP medical debt is that, which is burdensome debt on people that probably would pay it if they had the resources, not abolish for those individuals who may have the resources, but have been able to dodge paying the bill. So it's been a very focused approach. Now,
1: let me go step back, because if you're looking at a solution, which basically is there after medical death is accumulated, uh, when when people really are confronted with their medical bills. I thought that, for example, and in this country, there is a lot of discussions about that. About that. We have in this country the Affordable Care Act. We have, uh, some people call it Obamacare, health insurance. Everybody needs to have that insurance. Wasn't that supposed to be the solution to medical death or to being able to make healthcare affordable?
2: So what we had happen is we've provided for the poor in this country through Medicaid. We have provided for the over 65 population through Medicare. The population in between has largely relied upon their ability to buy insurance directly from insurance companies or employers' policy, provided policies. What unfortunately has occurred is as the price of health care services gone up, Healthcare care premiums have gone up. As health care premiums have gone up, employers and individuals have sought to reduce those payroll deductions, the increases in those premiums, by literally reducing the amount of health benefit they get. This is where we came back to deductibles, and the average deductible in this country now is about $2,000 for an individual. Plus, we've taken and we have had less generous benefits which has then given rise to things such as what we'll call a limited networks or claustrophobic networks, where the insurance only comes in if the provider is part of that network. So that middle group of people that have relied upon the availability of commercial insurance have actually been put every year at greater and greater risk of economic exposure. Right now, individuals are paying out of pocket for about 30 percent of their medical expenses that's after payroll deduction. Let's take a break.
1: After the break, we're back with Robert Goff, one of the co-authors of a new book, End Medical Debt, Curing America's 1 Trillion Unpayable Healthcare Debt.
0: Each day researchers make discoveries that bring us closer to the moment when all cancer patients can become survivors. Their progress is made possible with the help of clinical trials. Clinical trials are the brightest torch researchers have to light their way towards better treatments. And if you've been diagnosed with cancer, they may be your brightest ray of hope. Speak with your doctor and visit standuptocancer.org clinicaltrials clinical trials to learn more. Together, we can stand up for all of us. This is the Oncure Brief with Peter Hoffland and Sonia Portillo. And welcome back. I'm
1: Peter Hoffland, and this is the Oncure Brief. If you're just joining us today in the Oncuisine Brief, we talk with Robert Goff about medical debt. Goff is one of the co-authors of a book with the title End Medical Debt: Curing America's One Trillion Unpayable Healthcare Debt. I'm Peter Hoffland. And this is the ongoing brief.
2: The bulk of the population who are working Americans have relied upon coverage from commercial plans. As I had said before the break, as the cost of that insurance has gone up, because the cost of health care services have gone up, they have looked to reduce those costs by literally taking or having forced on them by their employer a greater portion of the cost. Deductibles, limitations on benefits. And this is the growing part of risk that our working Americans are experiencing now. They are not only paying higher payroll deductions and higher premiums for the health insurance, but their exposure continues to increase as insurance products look to keep the premiums from increasing by becoming more restrictive. So the very, very common problem that is occurring and creating an element of medical debt is when an individual has a policy that says, yes, we'll provide coverage, but only if you go to our participating providers, right. hospital, and the physicians must be par, and all the physician, all everybody involved must be par. Well, you know, if an individual shows up the emergency room or a family member shows up there, the concern is their health first. They'll worry about the bills later. And should they even be forced to ask the question, oh, you want to do surgery? Well, is the anesthesiologist par with my plan? Is the pathologist par with my plan? Is the radiologist par with my plan? Is the hospital par with my plan? And not getting the yes definitively back to those questions means the individual may find themselves without coverage.
1: So what you're saying is that if somebody shows up in an emergency room or is going to maybe even an elective surgery, if that is necessary, all the members of the care team, whether it's the doctor, the anesthesiologist, um, um, whoever is part of that care team, um, they all need to be part of that the network of, of the insurance company before things are covered?
2: That's correct, and especially in elective. Now, most policies have some coverage at least, if it's been an emergency situation, but on an elective procedure, most policies require that everybody involved be par. So, you know, the story is, gee, you went to a participating hospital, you knew your surgeon was participating. Did you think to ask, is the assistant surgeon participating? Did you think to ask whether or not the anesthesiologist is participating? What about the hospital pathologist? What about the hospital radiologist? And it's very insidious, in particular with hospitals, because hospitals grant monopolies to the radiologists, the anesthesiologists, the pathologists, the emergency room physicians. And the hospitals most times sit there and say, well, we are not involved. There's a story that I make mention of in the book about a woman who uh, had a premature baby and terrific, wonderful the hospital was par or OBGYN was par, but the neonatologist who has an exclusive to staff that hospital isn't par. And the insurance company said, well, you know, we'll pay 50000 And the bill was a couple hundred thousand. That's yeah. the kind of exposure people have with the current insu- commercial insurance policies that are there. And that's one of the great things that we wish to do with this book is warn people. People don't pay attention to their health insurance policies until they need them, and then it's too late
1: no i can I can imagine and I think it's also a good warning for our listeners that if they were elective for what kind of surgery even or what kind of procedure they <laughs> they they need to undergo it's it's important to check those facts. If you're not sure and and if you have an insurance uh, insurance, where might somebody find that particular kind of information?
2: So every policy should have a benefit summary page that lays out rather simple English, what is covered and what the limitations are in coverage. And if there's any doubt, get it from the HR department of the employer, ask the insurance agent if you have one involved, or even call the insurance company direct. Oftentimes, you can find this on the website. And it will say, you know, coverage 100% uh, in network or it will say 80% in network, 20% out of network. Those are the things you have to see. And what are the deductible levels? So that it may be that uh, the insurance will pay after the deductible, it'll pay 100% in network or 70% in network up until another deductible. The nuances can be overwhelming, especially in a time of illness. That's why it's best to understand it now and to prepare for it. If you have a policy with a $2,000 deductible, plan on it. I hate to say it, but put some money aside. The great financial wisdom is that you should always try to maintain three to six months of income as a reserve in the event you lose your employment. Well, that kind of reserve would also help out in the event that there is an illness and you have a big deductible. And then pay attention to who the providers are. There's another piece I would mention. Look at the policy uh, limitations in terms of things such as radiology and laboratory. You may have a 20% copay. Well, okay, if you go to a hospital, that MRI may be $1,000. That's a $200 copay. But if you go to a private freestanding, that bill may only be $700 to the insurance company. Well, you're at $140 or less. Yeah. Same thing, laboratory work at a hospital is about 300% or more of a commercial laboratory. So when your physician says, gee, you need an MRI, and says, well, gee, go to, my, you know, go to the local hospital I work out of, pause for a minute. And, and the other guidance I always will give is if you're going to feel economic stress when obtaining medical services, tell your physician early on. Don't be embarrassed. Physicians have a very special relationship with their patients. They want them to be well. They're concerned about them. And they will work with you in planning your care, trying to maximize your insurance coverage. Doesn't mean they'll be 100% successful, but they at least will try to, when they make a referral, say, "Well, here are the choices. This one, let's make sure they're par with your network first. And so the physician can be a great ally in helping keeping your costs down.
1: And obviously, that is a there's actually a very good suggestion to, to keep in mind that they are not only the ones that uh, uh, really be able to treat you, uh, they are actually on your side when it comes to looking at what are the options and, and how you can benefit from that.
2: Most physicians that I have ever met, if the patient, because of a deductible, is running into personal financial problems, we'll work with you to spread out payments or make a schedule even for their own services. One of the reasons that I got involved with medical debt was because I found physicians had a problem between head and heart. Their heart said, gee, I have a patient here who I know is feeling economic stress. I don't want to push them for getting, collecting my, my fee. And on the other hand, my, their head says, gee, if I don't collect my fees, I'm not going to be able to keep my practice open. And they've struggled with that. And they're willing more so than the hospital CFO, who is a big institution, to try to work these things through. But likewise, if the bill's is overwhelming, say something to the hospital. May be eligible for the hospital's charity programs and resources that they have. So don't be afraid to say something. The worst thing you can do is keep your mouth shut and not get the care you need. So it
1: is always the um, the primary thing to make sure that you do get care. Um, obviously, that's that's for your health and and the financial health um, goes hand in hand with that. Uh, obviously, now uh, Robert, you wrote a book together with co-authors and medical debt from the book, but also from the information that is that was given to me before the radio show. I understand that you do not necessarily as the the different authors agree with one another 100%. Tell me a little bit about that.
2: So the three of us, Jerry Ashton, Craig Antico, and myself, have very different views in terms of where to go with the whole issue of providing health care for Americans. And that makes made, made some, some interesting conversations. What we try to do is stay from a factual position. Craig is very much, much more on looking for Americans to take a higher degree of personal responsibility, including personal financial planning, including dealing with how do they lead healthier lives, Jerry Ashton has a much different view. He is much more of a Medicare for all. Let the government take care of it. It's, his, you know, he takes the view of healthcare as a vital service, and the taxes pay for police, which are a vital service, and fire, which is a vital service. So why do we make people who are become ill pay for a vital service when they're ill? I have a, a bit of a different view in terms of that, and it's part of where I come in my objections and concerns regarding uh, the Affordable Care Act, which some people call Obamacare. And then there are facts regarding Medicare of all that I think a lot of people are talking about without knowing what they're talking about, quite frankly. I view the whole, the whole issue that I see is one of cost. If healthcare didn't cost as much as it did, it would not be resulting in the kind of premiums we have and the lack of coverage issues and the unaffordability of healthcare services. Let's take a short break here,
1: and then we talk some more about medical debt with Robert Goff one of the co-authors of a book, End Medical Debt, Curing America's 1 Trillion Unpayable Healthcare Debt.
0: Some of the best sounds you'll ever hear are generic, safe, effective, This is the OnCosine Brief with Peter Hoffland and Sonia Portillo. Welcome back. I'm Peter Hoffland,
1: and this is the OnCosine Brief. If you're just joining us today in the OnCosine Brief, we talk with Robert Goff, one of the co-authors of the book End Medical Debt, Curing America's 1 Trillion Unpayable Healthcare Debt.
2: My fear and what we've seen from the Affordable Care Act is really we haven't addressed the issue of cost. The Affordable Care Act was focused on, and I'm not saying it was wrong, on trying to get everybody covered, get everybody insurance. For some people, based on income, there were subsidies. For others, it became a matter of you had to purchase it or your employer had to provide a package. But it didn't do a thing about really the underlying cost. My fear for Medicare for all or any kind of government system is unless you address for the cost, all you're doing is institutionalizing a healthcare delivery system, which is grossly too expensive, which is not structured in any way to deliver care faster, better, and cheaper, and is not dealing with confronting what we call the social determinants of health. Why are people getting ill and how do we intervene earlier to keep them healthy? So when I look at what occurred with the Affordable Care Act, the people thought it was something that it isn't. People thought that it was everybody is covered and everybody is covered from dollar one. And what we've seen is that we expanded Medicaid and we then left others with higher deductibles. For Medicare for all, my concern is most people don't understand that Medicare isn't a broad benefit package. It is very limited to non-existent and preventative services. It does not cover long-term care and it makes the patient responsible for 20% of the cost with some nominal deductibles. But Medicare for All is being banted around is somehow the solution. Again, that isn't addressing fundamentally why are the costs, what the costs are and do they have to be? My focus then becomes one of can't we take and redevelop the system so that it is far less costly. What does that mean? That means building a system that pushes preventative care, routine care, the routine maintenance of people who have chronic illnesses, trying to deal with the reasons, the social determinants of health, and how do we shift out of a hospital-based, hospital-dominated system to one that is much more outpatient, Family oriented, patient-centered. We've now created and allowed the system create to be created one which is dominated by the most expensive component of healthcare delivery, the hospital. We've actually reached the point where many hospitals are running profit margins far greater than that of insurance companies. How is that possible for these community organizations to do that? What we've done is we've created monopolies by these hospitals or oligarchies. Where they command such a force that they literally can demand from the insurance companies higher and higher rates. It was a figure that I saw with these consolidation of healthcare systems that you're looking at rate increases of forty percent in some of these consolidations. Those rate increases are not on Medicaid because that's government set, not on Medicare because that's government set. It's on the commercial insurance. So remember what was happened with. Healthcare reform with the Affordable Care Act, Medicaid, government taking care of more people under Medicaid, Medicare, government uh, supported in part, but the commercial insurance isn't protected as far as these rate increases that are forced on them by these consolidating hospitals.
1: Now, interesting thing, right, is that you mentioned here the hospital is part of the greatest cost of, of healthcare. and and, and you refer to some of the really staggering numbers here, that this is kind of really scary in one way. But if you hear people, and and often the media is part of that, I mean, um, and in this program, we've been talking about that a a lot in the past, uh, people always have the understanding that the affordability of of healthcare starts with, for example, drug prices. Now, in a past program, we were talking to somebody um, um, from a pharmaceutical company they mentioned some numbers um, in about between 10 and 15% of the actual medical bill might go to, to in, in the case of cancer therapy, for example, go to the actual drug prices. The rest is uh, other than drug prices. Where you are standing, I mean, how do you look at those numbers and, and, and what should people really know about that?
2: Well, there's no ifs, ands, or buts. that but drug prices have gotten the bulk of attention, it's become a very Uh, very prominent in terms of the argument. And we have allowed that to occur by not even doing some of the basic things, such as allowing a government to negotiate pharmaceutical prices for Medicare and for Medicaid. I mean, and the commercial plans attempt to do that. Most of them don't have the uh, volume in order to bring that down. I will tell you, i found some very fascinating things occurring. Um, It's Sloan Kettering Cancer Institute the physicians got together and told the ph- a couple of the pharmaceutical companies that uh, they weren't going to move to the next generation of uh, meds mm-hmm. unless the price came down. And many of these things where the physicians are beginning to say, and with, with their hospital, well, let's take a look. Do we really need to go to that next generation? Or wait, can we continue? Or can we use two medications as opposed to this newest, latest, and greatest? You have a similar type problem with the drug companies that you have with hospitals, and that is the oligarchy. There's only one or two manufacturers, they have the ability to increase the prices without that competition. That whole area of how long should a drug have the exclusivity, the copyright uh, protection needs to be looked at. Uh, We have to take a look at how some of these drugs are being promoted. There's an old number around, I haven't seen a new one, that pharmaceutical companies are spending over $30,000 per physician, per year, in promoting their drugs, it becomes overwhelming. And by the way, the public also has a role in this because if you talk to physicians, a lot of the demand for a script comes from the patient who saw that ad on TV. I was reading an article about um, what is the impact of patient satisfaction systems on prescription writing, and physicians who are rated by their patients actually prescribe more prescriptions because the patient is asking for them. And it's kind of like, well, I got to get my, I gotta get my uh, satisfaction scores up. I mean, I'm going to be rated. I may, my compensation may be adjusted. You know, we, we have a problem in pediatrics that we've moved to so many pediatric antibiotics that many children are becoming immune to the routine scripts because they've been given so many antibiotics over the early years. We have to understand that on antibiotics, it doesn't work on a virus. It only works on bacteria. But the parent is demanding the script. The physician says, gee, it's easier to write than to you know, and it's not going to do any harm. Well, it's created harm.
1: It's definitely creating harm in the fact that you treat somebody with somebody that something that might is, is not made for that particular
2: disease. Look at, uh, patients have to be their own advocate, and I respect that, and any quality physician respects that as well. Physicians have to become educators much more. and I know that's a problem when they're trying to see the volume of patients that they're seeing, but they have to educate the patient of when the drug is right for the patient and wrong for the patient. The antibiotic example is very clear. Giving antibiotics when a person has a virus is going to do absolutely nothing for that virus. The patient may feel good. Gee, I got a script. The uh, doctor may get a better score in their uh, Presgainy uh, patient satisfaction study, but they haven't done right by the patient. The amount of pharmaceutical advertising is absolutely incredible. And its goal is to influence the patient to ask, the patient to push. Doctor, what about, what about, what about? I found that uh, quality physicians will say, this is why I'm prescribing this. Yes, it's not the name brand. It's generic or it is the earlier generation because it will do just as well it doesn't have the side effects of, the, of this or that. Or quite frankly, the side effects are so mild, I can save you a lot of money by ordering this script as well. You know, that to me is a real problem that we have. And I'm not sure, quite frankly, whether or not the pharmaceutical advertising should have ever been allowed. I think it becomes far too much noise within the system. But the pharmaceutical companies are advertised because it works. It promotes Now, you know, you mentioned uh, the colonoscopy. I I would put in whenever I have a chance, I'm a firm believer in colonoscopies. It's not that bad. It's a ritual that, and as a matter of fact, what we're finding now is that colon cancer is actually becoming more common in younger people. So it used to be at age 50, the colonoscopy was the ritual, you know, that you've reached that point. The reality is we're now seeing cancers in 20 and 30-year-olds that we never saw before whether it's related to diet or environment, nobody is really fully studied. But it's a real must because our ability to treat colon cancer when it's caught late, we don't do well. The patients don't do well. It's much easier when the, you know, when the person is having the colonoscopy to one, be checked out. Also, the polyp in a precancerous state can be just nipped right there during the procedure and done. So it's a it's well worth it. Uh, the inconvenience of losing basically a day in one's life it's very much worth taking that effort. Colon cancer, is, you know, is not something to be dismissed, and no one wants it. No one enjoys it. But I'm a firm I'm a firm believer. So please, whoever's listening, get your colonoscopy.
1: Yeah, it, it is definitely a topic that uh, in March uh, we actually been discussing a lot. Uh, March was uh, national. Uh, Colorectal uh, Cancer Awareness Month. Um, So it's definitely a a very important subject uh, for people to get screened um, and to understand that screening may help them to avoid the cancer. And uh, in, in contrast to different forms of cancer, colorectal cancer can be avoided if, if you um, are getting the right treatment uh, on time and in the pre-cancer situations polyps can be removed and doctors can actually do what they need to do. So that's a unique way of, of colorectal cancer. Let's take a short break. After the break we're back with our interview with Robert Goff. I'm Peter Hofland and this is The Yonkers in Brave.
0: Did you know that generic drugs are just as safe and effective as brand name drugs? Generics might look different, but they work the same way. And they can even save you money. Don't believe me? Ask your doctor or pharmacist or visit fda.gov slash generic drugs. This is the Oncogene Brief with Peter Hofflin and Sonia Portillo. And welcome back. I'm Peter Hoffland,
1: and this is the Angus Brief. Our interview today with Robert Goff, one of the co-authors of the book *End Medical Debt, Curing America's 1 Trillion Unpayable Healthcare Debt, was originally recorded in March 2019. Let, let me talk a little bit more about your organization, uh, because one of the things you have a goal to reach by 2020. Tell me a little bit about that.
2: So our goal is to abolish $1 billion of consumer medical debt by 2020. And I firmly believe we're going to make it. We've abolished in excess of a uh, half a billion dollars in consumer medical debt at this point of time. And and how long did that take? So the organization is uh, now five years old. We limped along for the first two years. Until we were discovered based upon the first book that Jerry Ashton and I wrote called The Patient, the Doctor, and the Bill Collector, which was discovered by the John Oliver show on HBO. And John Oliver was making a point about predatory collection practices and had acquired through a paper company the right to go after, to pursue $15 million of consumer medical debt. And the HBO attorney said, wait a minute, you know, should we really be doing this? And fortunately, the HBO attorneys knew an attorney who knew me, and we were asked to come in, and we abolished the $15 million worth of medical debt on John Oliver's behalf, for which we received our logo on his uh, show for nine seconds, and the name of the charity was mentioned three times. And from there, it has taken off. We've had tremendous, tremendous support, and it's ranged from an evangelical church in, uh, outside of Dallas. It was able to abolish through us eleven million dollars worth of consumer medical debt in the zip code areas that their church services and draws from. They were thrilled. They did it for Easter. They announced it at the Easter service. We had, and I'll tell you one that struck me very, uh, very personally. We did a campaign with uh, Action Jackson, out of Jacksonville, Florida, the uh, television station, and they uh, we abolished about. Uh, $5 million through the station directly through their funds, but the public came through. And one of the letters that we received was from this gentleman. He said, look, at, my wife recently died of cancer. I had good insurance. We weren't hurt economically. But during her treatment, I met many people undergoing cancer treatment that did not. So here's a check representing the proceeds of her life insurance. Please buy consumer medical debt for others. So the range has been phenomenal in the support that has for this idea, because when you think of it, the idea that hospitals in particular, some physicians, are selling their debt to collectors for pennies on the dollar to pursue people in their own communities. These are hospitals that have said, we care about the community, and they do, but their CFO says, ah, I want to make some money here. Yeah. They're not, you know, the, the charity care by hospitals is actually dropping in this country, the amount of charity care they're giving. So here we are cleaning up after the fact, if you will, trying to do what we can. In a perfect world, I'd love to, you know, not be involved, not need to do this. I'd love to see a health care system and a method of that is affordable so that we could provide for everybody in this country. Right now, we're kind of like cleaning up after the parade, if you will with this consumer medical debt. We will continue to do this. Our goal was to abolish a billion dollars worth of consumer medical debt. We're better than halfway there. And given the number of people that keep stepping up, businesses that step up, I firmly believe we will make that goal.
1: Now, we are really close to the end of this program. And I think it is fascinating to hear you talk about some of the issues that are really there with uh, medical debt. I think most of our listeners also are completely unaware of this fact and and how it may impact them. Or if it doesn't impact them, like the gentleman in Florida you refer to, how it may impact the community, um, that's really an eye-opener, I would say. Now, you you provide a a charity service by eliminating the medical debt. That money comes from somewhere. So if somebody hears this and says, okay, well, I think this is a fantastic way to help my community. What can they do? How can they contribute to this? Is there a need to contribute? How
2: does that work? Well, the, the, the need is definitely there and they're definitely welcomed. And I would invite them, urge them, welcome them to contact us through our website, www.ripmedicaldebt.org. And we have the history. We have all of our details on that site. As well as examples of campaigns that people have run for their communities, and we have worked to support those campaigns, doing the backroom work of acquiring the debt. And so we welcome all uh, you know all contributions are very very much welcome, appreciated. We believe we leverage those dollars because we buy it as it's being sold for pennies on the dollar, and you know to be able to have that kind of an impact on individuals, uh, the stories. That we get back from people, the burden that we've relieved is really, really hard. I want to make one point that we mentioned cancer quite a bit here, give you an impact economically. No one volunteers to get cancer. And people who are being treated for cancer have a nearly three times higher rate of bankruptcy than those people who are not receiving cancer treatment. And 43% of people being treated for cancer will spend their entire financial resources. That's
1: that's really an, an, an eye-opener in itself.
2: Do we want citizens of our country to be impoverished because of cancer diagnosis or any diagnosis? Is that really what we want for our fellow citizens?
1: With that, let's end this program. Thank you very much, Robert Goff, uh, for uh, uh, our uh, time together here in this uh, program to try to tell people uh, what it can do and, and again we uh, make sure that they be able to f- find your website ask for help if needed but also contribute if they can thank you very much
2: Peter thank you so much for giving us the opportunity you're welcome
1: if you want to know more about the effects of medical debt, check out Robert Goff's article in our online journal On Cuisine at www.oncogene.com In this article, with the title The Fear Insurance Will Not Cover, Goff writes about the problem and how we got here. He writes about the impossibility of making insurance coverage broad and affordable when the cost of medical services is so prohibitive. Also, you can order his book End Medical Debt, Curing America's 1 Trillion Unpayable Healthcare Debt via Amazon and Barnes & Nobles, or via Onkozin. For us here at the Oncozine Brave, we want to thank you, our listeners and underwriters, for your ongoing support. Thanks to your support, our program now has a wider reach with distribution via iHeartRadio, in addition to PRX Public Radio Exchange, and in the United Kingdom and mainland Europe via UK Health Radio. You can also download our program via iTunes. In Arizona, you can listen to the Oncogene Brief via independent talk 1100 KFNX, one of the top 10 radio stations in Arizona, reaching almost 5 million people throughout the state. For more information about that, check out our online journal Oncogene at www.oncogene.com. To help make this program possible, please visit our page at patreon.com forward slash the Brief that is p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash brief. Your support for this program is important. It allows us to bring you interviews with experts involved in the development of novel diagnostics and new treatments. So please visit our page on patreon.com forward slash brief If you're living in the United States and want to receive our newsletter, text the word CANCER to 66866 and we will make sure that you'll receive our newsletter, which includes an overview of the latest news in oncology and hematology. Thank you all, and thank you for listening, and join us again for our next episode. I'm Peter Hoffland, and this is The Oncogene Brief.
0: The Oncogene Brief was produced for Sun Valley Communication by Peter Hoffland. Sonia Portillo, Evan Went, David Kaler, and Sean Mayer, and distributed by InPress Media Group. Support for the OnCozine Brief comes from listeners of this station and our commercial underwriters and advertisers. For more information about underwriting and sponsoring options, contact Sean Mayer in California at 949-923-1660 or visit our website at oncazine.com. Forward slash underwriting. The Yonkazine Brief contains health and medicine-related information and is provided for educational and entertainment purposes only. The content is not intended as a substitute for professional medical or health advice and does not replace your doctor's advice. Your doctor is the best person to answer questions about your personal health. If you hear something in this program that doesn't agree with what your doctor has told you, ask him or her about it.